I'm Emma G. Rose. I'm Shell Shearer. We're indie authors. And this is Indie Book Talk. Hello and welcome back to Indie Book Talk. Today we have with us Mike Hilbig, author of Judgment Day and Other White Lies. Now, I found Mike on Twitter. I don't remember how, but he writes, Deconstructing Whiteness by Retelling Versions of Greek, Roman, and Christian Myths. And it's a little bit meta and and a little bit deep and strange and wonderful. And so we're excited to have him. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Hi. I'm going to need some explanation. <laughs> so can you tell a little bit more about what you're writing? Yeah. So um, so this collection is called Judgment Day and Other White Lies. As, as uh, Emma mentioned, it's sort of, you know, uh, deconstructions of Greek uh, and, and Christian myth. And all, it has some Roman in there, too, but, but mostly, you know, off of the Greek. And it's, it's sort of, again, aimed at, at deconstructing this idea of Western civilization. So, you know, when I was in grad school, I studied really heavily uh, narrative theory. And, um, and these collections, as, as she mentioned, are, have a meta element to them. So they're stories about storytelling. And I think we often, when we talk about the ancient past, right, we, we read our own present tense context into it. So, so what I'm trying to get at is sort of like, you know, this idea of Western civilization or, or whiteness, white supremacy, those kinds of um, ideas. I also deal with things like capitalism and patriarchy, all the sort of big systems that interact with our stories. Um, that we're actually reading our present tense values into those cultures, right? And then using that present tense analysis to hold up, you know, a justification or an authority for for sort of what the values we have present day are. And so um, I'm just kind of interested in the process of sort of how do we come to find truth? Um, and then what happens when we live by these things that are not truth? Some, some European colonists in the in the 1600s decided that, you know, white people were superior because of their skin color, which we know is is not true, right? But that, you know, because of that, we still have all these systems in place today that dictate and structure the way that our society runs still based on that sort of lie. So I'm, I'm interested in like the ways that fictions hold up reality. And, and and I think that you know when we we say the word reality, I think a lot of people tend to think of it as the, you know the objects in our world, the you know the, the things we exist in, the, the facts, all that kind of stuff. But I think oftentimes the stories we tell have a really uh, heavy component in holding up how we think about what the world is and, and what our place in the world is and, and how things change through time. And so I'm trying to expose some of that storytelling structure as I also tell stories and and, and do that from you know sort of the white male writer's perspective. I'm an English teacher, so I, you know we say our value is we teach critical thinking. In a lot of ways, this book is aimed at sort of teaching the readers critical thinking, to teach you to sort of question who your author is, what they what their values might be, um, you know, why they're putting the force, the truth that they're putting forth as you're reading the collection. And of course, it's it's not super didactic, or at least I hope not. I've tried to make them fun and, and accessible and, and interesting stories on top of just having that element of, of sort of socio-political thought as well. So I guess that's the long and the, and the short of it. That's well, a lot. One of, my, yeah. one of my favorite things about this collection, because I, I, I actually bought it and I've been reading it, is the way that you do juxtapose like really heavy, deep, insightful, philosophical, you know, there, there's analysis here, but then it's happening next to foul language and, and drugs and rock and roll. Like, it, there's nothing holy about this. It's very grounded. The first story in here is told all in quotes, like two people talking to each other and you don't know who they are, really. And it's about the origins of man and how we were all just monkeys who were like looking for mushrooms to get high and have sex. Like, <laughs> it's very... Yeah, um, and that story... So, you know, the dialogue component, I think that these all things tie into like thinking about story structure, right? Like we often, um, you know, we get this book and we think of it as this singular object right and and I'm reading this book and it's this one story within the book but 
but stories are a form of communication, right? And so, um, and so it's from writer to reader, and and then the reader also then you know imposes their own meaning on a text. So, um, for instance, second story in the collection is is a, is a story called Fury or Matricide and Sound, and um, based on a on a Greek myth about uh, this hero whose mother has has murdered his father, and in a Greek honor culture, you're supposed to avenge your father's death, but it's also dishonorable to you know kill your mother. Um, I turn it into an assisted suicide story. It's it's interesting to see the difference in reaction between people who have lost a parent reading that story and people who have not lost a parent reading that story and the, and the emotional depth that a reader brings to a story, right? Depending on their own life experiences. So um, stories are a form of communication, going back to that that first story again, that, that dialogue form, I think that stories are often dialogues that are in disguise, right? And so um, I use all these structures um, within the storytelling to kind of expose those bare bones of story. And then again, you know, they're fun. Um, that story is based on a, a theory by a guy named Terrence McKenna, it's called stoned ape theory. And he believes that humanity evolved because a bunch of apes in prehistory were eating magic mushrooms and having trips and, and, you know, developing language and telling stories about those trips. And so I thought it'd be funny. Like what if we were all living by mythologies created by violent sex crazed stone monkeys is sort of the joke in that story. So. (laughs) Okay. And is this your first book that you've written? Yeah, this is my first book. Um, I, I got an MFA degree from Sam Houston State University in 2017, and this is a, a version of the graduating thesis. You know, it's it's actually quite trimmed down. So uh, <laughs> it was originally about 350 pages, and I, I probably cut about half of it out, and and just really liked the tightness of it. After you know, I, I cut things even that I liked from it. Um, I I used to play in punk rock bands in my early 20s. I'm, I'm 40 now, and. Uh, you know, we used to have this saying of, you know, you want a set list to be all killer and no filler. So, uh, you know, I edited it for a couple more years after grad school while I was sending it out. And yeah, finally, it just got into this really tight uh, shape. And I, I really liked it and was proud of what I was saying and, and thought it was what I wanted to say. And um, and yeah, and then it got it got picked up for publication in 2020 and it came out in February. So, <laughs> so yeah. I have fun. to know, do you think that having an MFA is a advantage if you want to publish a book? Um, it's hard to say, right? Um, I, I think at the time of my life when I did it, it made sense to do, right? Um, I don't think it's necessary for a writer to have gotten an MFA degree. I think I had the talent. Um, I could have studied books and, and done it and eventually published a book on my own anyway. Um, I think what the MFA degree allows you to do is, in my case, it dedicated three years of my life to where, you know, I was reading and writing all the time, right? And that, um, in that process, you practice a lot and you, you get to learn craft and you, and you get to meet a lot of writers as well. So you get some, you know, um, some industry connects, right? But I also think, you know, it's, it's, it's really expensive. My, my student loan bill is not, is not happy now because of the MFA <laughs> program. So, um, I don't ever want to advise anybody. I think you have to decide what's, <laughs> what's best for you at your, at your point in time in your life. A lot of this actually goes back to, you know, sort of, um, what this book is, is about actually. Uh, like I said, I played in punk bands in my early twenties and, and what got me thinking about some of the themes in this book about whiteness and, and, and sort of how does white supremacy also hurt white people. I had two really good friends of mine that both, uh, you know, we live pretty fast lifestyles and I had two really good friends of mine that both passed away of drug overdoses when I was 25. And, uh, 
And, um, you know, we were all middle class white kids. You know, if you think about your lottery of birth odds, right, you could do a lot better than being a white middle class kid in America. And, and yet, you know, we were all very miserable and very rebellious and, and, and very aware of our privilege and didn't want it. And I felt like we just weren't really given uh, good tools for how to, like, think about that and how to uh, approach that politically and socially. Uh, we were like gifted kids with potential who weren't living up to it. Right. You know, like um, how, do, how do those things interact um, in, in the structure? You know, I think about like something like the opioid crisis, right? And it's, you know, ravaging white communities. And, and a lot of the reason for that is because of racist drug war policies, you know, and, and, and for-profit healthcare, which, which grow out of those sort of white supremacist ideas. So, um, so in any case, I, you know, at 25, my friends overdosed and I found myself back in school, uh, really just trying to do something that would like make my parents happy for the first time. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, went to undergrad and really found my niche there and found my way and read a lot of philosophy and history and, and fiction. And by the time I graduated, I was pretty sure that I wanted to do the writing thing. And I was getting some pretty good, pretty good commentary from my undergraduate creative writing professors. And, um, and, and so then it just, you know, sort of made sense for me to go on and get the MFA at that point in my life. It was just sort of an extension of that, like trying to find something else to do with my life other than sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So, um, but, but that was, that was sort of the time period in my life that got me really thinking about like, if, if equality is only like offering everybody some level of privilege when we're still living under this sort of hierarchical structures of capitalism, patriarchy, and all those other things, like, is that really the payoff that we're looking for? If, if we're thinking about a fair and free society for everyone. So, and, and again, they're not didactic stories. They're sort of just meant to show the sort of absurd logic that goes along with some of these American values. Um, so they, they sort of often have absurd endings, but, but, you know, I, I try to have fun on the page. I try to bring readers along in a way that's fun. It's not, not meant to preach at you or, or make you feel <laughs> uncomfortable or at least, you know, not in moments when you shouldn't. So uh, it goes, yeah. So just real quick about the MFA, what do you feel was the most important thing you got out of doing your MFA? Um, you know, I think, I think it was really just the, the time, right. And the, and the, then sort of the structure of, you know, having deadlines that you have to meet, you know, and, and that easy to go on, you know, indefinitely putting off, I'm going to write that thousand words tomorrow or whatever, you know, but like when you got a, you know, a, a meeting I with your called teacher. out. <laughs> um, when you, you know when you got a meeting with your thesis director on thursday at 2 p.m or whatever you know what i mean like like and it, you know that you're going to get a stern talking to if you don't have it or you know Maybe that's what i need a stern <laughs> thesis professor <laughs> it helps um just generate material and i think like anything else right writing is a, is a skill and it's a craft and we often tend to focus on the on the talent aspect of it and it's true that you know some people have a raw talent for it more so than others but i think the primary reason why people become great at writing is that they just do it a lot, right? And that they make the time to do it um, and, they, and they practice it and, and they read a lot and notice what those story structures are and try to, you know, write within them and subvert them and all those fun things, right? And so I think grad school just gives you a good place to be just focused on that, right? You know, you're either writing a lot or you're having conversations about writing all the time and, and, um, and it just sort of puts you in that environment where you're um, constantly surrounded by it. Now, I'll also say one of the downsides of an MFA, and this is, I think, I worked as an editor at a literary journal while I was in grad school for a couple semesters. And, um, and what you'll notice is that, you know, MFA programs tend to produce, um, not this isn't true 100% of the time, because there are different writers with unique personalities and that sort of thing, but they do tend to produce a certain form and a certain style. And, um, and my style and form are, <laughs> are definitely looking to sort of undo that a little bit, that sort of American realist, for lack of a better word, writers like, you know, Dennis Johnson or 
I'm trying to think of some other Cormac McCarthy. So some of these guys that are like held up really big, you know, you end up producing all this writing that looks a lot like their writings, you know? And so, um, and so I'm trying to sort of like, I, I liked having the time to write. I didn't always like that, you know, when I tried to do something uh, experimental or fun in, in workshop that, you know, often there was pushback to those things because it didn't look like something that, that people had seen before. And, and in some cases it was because I wasn't yet, yet pulling it off, right? I hadn't learned how to do that yet. But um, in some cases, I think it's just because Whenever you set up a standard, then, you know, how people live up to or, you know, fail to meet that standard then becomes the judge of what their quality is. And I don't think that's always true with an MFA program. So in any case, those are like sort of the goods and bad sides as I see them. Tell us about your publisher. So Madville Publishing, are they associated with your university or how did you find them? So um, so Madville Publishing is a small uh, literary press. They were started in Madisonville, Texas. Now they're based out of, uh, you know, Denon, Denon area. I think it's Lake Dallas is the name of the town. But um, my publisher, I actually, I didn't actually go to grad school with her, but she went to the same grad school as me. And, and we crossed paths and we worked at the same university press while we were in grad school. And after grad school, I had been editing this book and sending it out to small presses and, and just, you know, getting a lot of really nice rejections. Like we really like the book, but, you know, we don't know who you are. And, and are worried about marketing it, that sort of thing. And she had been sort of asking me about it all along, but she had just sort of started her press. And as y'all are aware that, you know, the book publishing world can be a pretty fickle industry, right? And so, you know, I wasn't sure how far her press was going to go when she first started it. And, and, and you know, I also didn't want to just like take my friend's offer to publish my book. And so, and I'd been striking out a lot. And, and you know, we, we met at AWP, I guess that's the Association of, of Writers and Writing uh, Programs. It's, a, you know, basically for university presses and, and, and writers and sort of the literary fiction community, uh, mostly. I mean, it has all sorts of different kinds of books and indie, indie books represented. But, um, but in any case, we met at, at AWP in San Antonio and she she sort of brought it up again and, and I, you know, sort of telling her, well, you know, I just, you know, don't know if I just want to have my friend publish my book. And that's where she said, well, like, I'll put it through an independent, and she has, you know, reviewers that work for her freelance. And she said she put it through an independent review process. So she sent it to um, an editor she knew who worked at Gulf Coast, which is a pretty big literary uh, journal out of uh, the University of Houston. And, um, and he looked at it and, and really praised the book and loved it. And, uh, and then she offered me a contract. And at that point, we were far enough down the road that, and she had also published some books that I had really loved in the meantime. And, and, you know, we were, and she works really hard. And, and at that point, we were far enough down the road that, you know, I sort of uh, was like, okay, let's go ahead and, and do it. And, um, now I'm pretty happy with that decision. So, yeah. So. Awesome. So this was uh, basically a, a version of your thesis. Do you, have you already started writing your next book or do you have thoughts in mind for it? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I have started it. Um, it's still pretty new in the process. Um, it's sort of actually a continuation on this same sort of theme. It's called Punk Rock Jesus, a novel. It's told in four fanzines. Actually, the, the woman who designed my book cover has agreed to work with me on it to do like backgrounds and layouts and fonts and cool illustrations of the fake bands I'm making up. But it's it takes place in a, in a sort of fictionalized, um, a fictionalized, you know, set of small towns in California that are based off biblical towns and, uh, in the 1980s. And, uh, and, and there's this figure in the hardcore scene named using a stage representation of Jesus. And, and these punks are trying to claim that he was actually a pretty magical figure. And he, he performs miracles like turns, you know, cough syrup into methamphetamine and, and things like that. Um, and in any case, he's, you know, sort of a white savior figure. And, uh, and there, it's basically like a retelling of the New Testament, but in a really blasphemous, 
um, in a really blasphemous sort of way. And yeah, and punk rock Jesus is, and, and so he's, he's sort of held up as this figure. And the, and the joke is that we're, that we're living in the sort of post-apocalypse since the Reagan years. And, and we just haven't realized it. So um, yeah. So that's, it's sort of a continuation of those same themes. Um, yeah. So, so, so that's sort of what the, the novel's about. And so when, when we get it finished with the illustrator, she should probably be something kind of in between a, a graphic novel and a regular novel. I mean, it'll still be a regular novel in the sense that it'll be prose, but there'll be lots of illustrations and fun stuff to look at. And, uh, I'm hoping that'll be a fun little thing that'll appeal to readers and hopefully appeal to publishers as well. So yeah. How do you, how do you market this? Cause like in some ways this is very niche, the kind of writing that you're doing. And in some ways it's like, no, everyone should read this. So how do you find your audience? Like where are you looking for your people? Yeah. So, um, I'm a, I think my, my history is sort of interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm in this academic world, but also come from this punk rock world. And when I was doing my book release party, it was pretty interesting because I had, you know, um, I had, <laughs> sorry, these, I was just picturing that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, had, I had all my old punk rock friends there and I had my college professor coworkers with me and, you know, family members and, uh, and it was, you know, an interesting mix of people, but, you know, everybody was laughing at the same jokes and, and whatnot. And I think I worked really hard to make this book accessible, obviously marketing it in the, you know, to sort of traditional literary fiction communities and, and, and the people who read that kind of stuff in academia. But um, I don't want it to be the kind of book that only college professors read. I spent a lot of time sort of trying to promo it on sort of indie book Twitter, which was, you know, sort of how I ran across y'all, because I think that people who enjoy, like, you know, it's not a fantasy book, but there's a lot of mythical and fantastical elements in it. And I think that people that enjoy fantasy can get into, um, you know, it has the sort of magical realism. It has some satire in it. It has, it has, it borrows from a lot of different worlds. I think that's just a product of who I am as a person. You know, I've, I've sort of, you know, skidded the line between all these, you know, different sort of lowbrow and highbrow culture. And, and I like that. I like when you shake that stuff up and, and, and sort of mix it together and, and find new and unique combinations for ways to put stories together you know, I'm the writer, so I don't want to be, I, I don't want to be too biased, but I tend to think that I, I do, I'm a pretty funny guy. And I think the stories have a lot of um, good humor in them that like, especially can pull the reader along. Cause there's, you know, there's also some sadder and more tragic and, and some hard stuff to deal with in this collection. Um, and I, I do try to lighten the load on the reader at certain points, like, Hey, you know, it's, it's okay to laugh at this stuff too. Like it's at the end of the day, all these other reasons for all these divisions and, and this sort of mental strife that goes along with it. Right. Um, on, on both, on both the, you know, sort of oppressor and oppressed side, as I'm trying to point out, right. That, um, that a lot of people, you know, I don't think want to live with these divisions. It's just sort of the stories we've been fed in the ways that we've been brought up in the cultures we've been brought up in. And, um, and that, you know, really a better conversation is to just sort of acknowledge like, Hey, we all have these sort of racist, sexist, um, you know, ideas in our heads that were placed there way ahead before us by people who lived hundreds of years ago and, and a better way than trying to like constantly have that, you know, pressure to be one of the good ones is to just sort of sit down and have a conversation of it and unpack it and figure out who put those ideas there and why did they put them there and, and what are we getting benefits from them? Cause my, my personal belief is that the people that most benefit that from, from that division or, or people at the very top of the social structure and that the, the majority of us really don't, right? The majority of us, you know, we get offered privilege instead of like healthcare or, or sick time or, you know, like uh, whatever else, right? Um, and, you know, or, or not having to work 50 to 60 hours a week or whatever it might be, you know? And, um, and I think a lot of us would, if we really thought about it, would prefer those other things to that sense of privilege, which is alienating and um, causes other problems, right? So, 
you know, I try to, I try to put all that, the humors in there and the, and the sort of groundedness and the sort of trafficking and sort of everyday people and, um, and, and those kinds of situations is really meant to sort of, uh, lighten the load a little bit. Cause I know I'm dealing with, with subjects that are pretty heavy. So, and, and, and I think it's, I think it's a worthy, you know, so I would say that the audience, I, I would like as many people to read it as possible. I'm also realistic that it's a, it's a small press release and, you know, the, the promotional work is being done by me and the publishing house is run by, you know, one woman with her two daughters, you know, and so it's, it's as far a reach as we can possibly get, but, you know, <laughs> Um, um, you know, and, and hoping it lands on the right person's desk and, you know, like, uh, and then I get a good review or something, you know, but, um, uh, but in the meantime, just busting my butt, trying to get it out as many hands as possible. So, yeah. So if people are into this punk rock academic blasphemous philosophical wonderment, that is your brain, how can they find you on the social medias? Yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter. It's just at Mike Hilbig. I'm on Instagram. It's Hilbig.Mike. And uh, and Facebook, I think, is, is Mike Hilbig as well. You can look me up there. I've got uh, a website, MikeHilbigWriter.com. Um, my publisher's website is MadvillePublishing.com. And you can find my book there as well. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the major, you know, all the major book publishers have it. Better to buy it off the publisher's website. But, you know, if, if you have a particular favorite bookstore, it's probably on one of the online bookstores. And yeah, and so um, it's out and I'm just trying to, you know, again, put it in as many hands as possible and, and try to start this, this conversation with people. Well, I can't wait to finish reading it. I, I wish I'd had, I sat down to read just one story and ended up halfway through the second one before I had to absolutely stop and get on a call. I can't wait to, to read the rest and I might tweet at you with some questions about what exactly are you doing here? <laughs> sure. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be happy to answer them. You know, I'm, I'm, I appreciate y'all in, inviting me on to talk, uh, talk the book for a few minutes. So, um, and, and yeah. It was great Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Nice talking to y'all. Thank you. Thank you.